Chasing Quicksilver, Chapter 3, Alchemy and the Hollow Bone, by Shannon B. Douglas. A few years ago, there was a story out of London, England, about a fatberg in the ancient sewer systems under the city. It was nicknamed the Whitechapel Monster, and it weighed 130 tons. A fatberg is like a clogged artery. It's a combination of coagulated food waste like kitchen grease and non-degradable cloth wipes which people flush down the toilet. These monsters accumulate within the sewers around the world and calcify into giant, solid masses that can entirely block the flow of waste from towns and cities. By the time the City of London identified this particular problem, the fatberg was over 800 feet long and took two months to remove at a cost of millions of pounds. Our personal journeys in pursuit of enlightenment demand that we confront the binding patterns of our existence that restrict the flow of energy in our lives. Very often these binding patterns are things, beliefs, and events which we've failed to process properly and which consequently tie us to the material world. Why is a sewer fatberg a comparable thing? Because the binding patterns within the structures of our psyche can seem like monsters. They're greasy and vile, sometimes frightening. They accumulate because in most cases we don't want to enter into any kind of dark subterranean space to deal with the crap that's built up in our unconscious depths. But if we don't, these blockages in our unconscious minds will cause us all kinds of misery. In one shamanic tradition I read about, the medicine man referred to himself when fully in a trance state, or in a state of communion with the divine, as a hollow bone. Prana or chi or psyche, the life force of existence, should naturally flow through our beings like clear water floats through a pipe, as if we are a hollow bone. If the pipe is clogged at various points along the way, the water will slow down, and only as much water will flow through the pipe as the narrowest point of passage will allow. The shaman or the mystic or the monk who is able to connect to the divine and flow pure, clean, and transformative energy through their system is either able to put aside the object which clogged their system or to temporarily bypass the shadows of the unconscious to connect to mystical experience and enlightened states. On a more accessible level, if you've ever practiced yoga or meditation, you may have heard about desired states of meditation. Finding stillness between the objects of the mind. Marinating in the space between the thoughts, feelings, finding space away from the inner critics and the mental laundry lists that normally clutter our psychic space and interrupt the flow of chi or prana in our lives. In case this sounds like too much like a new age concept, it translates into easy examples that are grounded in our scientific and consensus reality. Perhaps the most common in our modern awareness is something called post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. PTSD is an incredibly debilitating affliction that affects people because it acts a bit like a sleeping monster in the unconscious. The monster, a pattern of responses, was once the best coping mechanism that the individual could manage in the face of a traumatic circumstance which they couldn't control. In day-to-day -day life, an individual with PTSD may experience events that trigger their survival responses in situations that simply are no longer appropriate. When that happens, they may be suddenly consumed by the stress responses that are tied to the memories of the toxic, violent, or life-threatening environments which traumatized them in the first place.
They may not even be able to put words to this experience. These triggers may flare up short-term psychological symptoms of PTSD, or a person with symptoms may suffer from ongoing, pervasive and intrusive thoughts, paralyzing fears, and debilitating anxiety. Often in serious cases, people may lose their capacities to manage themselves effectively in day-to-day life. There are many expressions of hyperactive defense mechanisms that affect people in their lives. Anger, fear, sadness, guilt, anxiety, and depressive patterns can all arise in us like monsters from the depths of our unconscious at the wrong time, causing dysfunction. While today, this is the domain of the psychologist, these things are nothing new for human beings. Assisting people with these issues was one of the traditional roles of the shaman, the guru, the local healer, or the mystical priest and priestess. The healing strategies were coded in the oral traditions and the collective consciousness and unconsciousness of the community. The stories passed from one generation to the next, from one mouth to the next ear. In the mystical stories of Greece, the god Zeus fell in love with a mortal woman named Io. Zeus is the god and the planet in the sky associated with growth and expansion, who was sometimes prone to excesses. In Rome, he was known as Jove, and we get the word jovial from this. A jovial person is someone who tends to overindulge in pleasures, a happy-go-lucky bon vivant. And as a consequence, this person can appear, or Zeus can appear, in classical representations with a fullness of figure, consuming rich food, intoxicating drink, wearing lavish clothing. This is not the debauchery of overindulgence of Bacchus or Dionysus, the god of wine and entertainment. Zeus's excesses are greedy of all the pleasures, and the consequences for joviality for him are much more significant than a hangover. Zeus was well known for his dalliances and excesses with mortal women, and his wife, the goddess Hera, was acutely aware of his propensities, and she was jealous and vengeful. In one of the many stories about Zeus's philandering, in order to hide his lover from the wrath of the goddess and to keep her accessible to him, Zeus turns his beautiful lover, Io, into a magnificent white heifer. Hera, not tricked by Zeus's deception, sees this cow grazing in Zeus's fields and his gardens and asks her husband for the cow as a gift. This traps Zeus into giving his lover over to his immortal wife. In order to prevent Zeus from getting to Io again, Hera appoints Argus Panoptes, a giant with a hundred eyes who never slept, to guard Io against theft. This fearsome monster was endowed with the ability to close many of its eyes to rest, but it was constantly scanning the environment for threats, ready to block the passage of anyone attempting to get through to the treasures he kept, like a hundred-ton attacking fatberg clogging the pipes. Longing for his lover, Zeus sent his messenger Hermes, the cunning trickster, the inventor of music and the teller of stories, with his musical pipes to trick the monster with one hundred eyes. Hermes, through song and story, slowly lulled this monster to sleep, one eye at a time, and when the monster was suddenly quiet, Hermes killed him and released Io to her lover once again. If only finding enlightenment or curing anxiety or guilt or the symptoms of PTSD were as simple as playing some distraction on a flute to tame a single beast of the unconscious. 
if it were only as simple as unclogging a subterranean passageway. The path to enlightenment is not a straight line blocked by a giant fatberg. The path of healing that takes us to our greater potential self is full of twists and turns, and in myth and legend, over and over, the underground passageways are described as a maze full of shadows and monsters. The labyrinth stories told over and over is the story of the unexplored, repressed, and sometimes rejected aspects of the self which stand between us and the next, more enlightened stage of our lives. At the center of which is the restorative cup of life, or the impenetrable skin of the lion's mantle, the golden fleece. The promises of magical elixirs, though, are not enough for most people to deal with their demons. We generally accept a certain level of discomfort and disease in our lives. We work in unfulfilling occupations, we tolerate mediocre relationships, and we continue living in toxic environments. Most people never voluntarily confront their demons because they're too afraid. If we did, we might awaken these sleeping giants, destabilize the balance of psychic energy in our day-to-day -day lives, and we might have to change. Evolving past negative patterns requires creating new patterns. Sometimes the only thing more frightening than confronting the monsters in the maze is entering into the unknown territory beyond. If we know a section of the maze well enough to be comfortable, even though we're tiptoeing around a hundred-eyed monster, sometimes this is enough. It's also possible that we keep going around the same twists and turns of a maze, ending in the same situation over and over again because we can't figure out how to do things differently, even though we might want to. This can manifest itself in issues of financial insecurity, for example, where it seems no matter what we do, we're always dealing with the same kinds of money problems over and over again. Or it can manifest itself in relationships where we date the same kind of person over and over again, or in careers where we have the same kind of boss over and over again, the same patterns and the same struggles. In the East, this is known as the Wheel of Suffering. In Sanskrit, it's called Samsara. We run on this wheel like hamsters going nowhere, reacting over and over in the same unconscious patterns to the figures and forms in the subterranean depths of our minds. When we realize this, it's deeply humbling and seems like it should have been obvious. But the source of these issues has nothing to do with how smart we are or whether or not we're good people. The source of these issues, the maze monsters, are our own unconscious shadows. One of the significant problems that prevent us from understanding and accepting the issues related to obstacles in the maze is that the tools of intellect and rational analysis don't work. The language and the currency of our minds is not thought. It's not force or math or science. The language of the unconscious depths is symbol. And in this domain, which Joseph Campbell called the realm of magnified power, there are rules that apply that just don't make sense in the mundane world. What's important to know and to understand is that our unconscious minds work on a set of fundamental principles and drives. And as they do this, they influence and shape our conscious experience of the world. It doesn't make sense that a smell or a sudden loud noise or just the thought of an abuser, even a long dead one, should trigger downward spirals of anxiety and depression and interferes like in the case of PTSD. The prime directive of our unconscious minds, and I will return to these three functions later in this work, 
are rooted in the basis drives of all living organisms to protect us from danger, to ensure that we obtain energy and resources for survival, and to assist us in successfully procreating. We like to think we're rational beings. We're not. These are the instincts that drive us. When a part of our unconscious mind detects a perceived threat, as in the case of PTSD, it fires off a whole sequence of patterns and responses that were originally designed to protect us from danger. The hundred-eyed monster awakes in us when we're not really in danger, and that's the problem. These kinds of triggers wake up the minotaur or the ogres or the shades of the unconscious, and suddenly, like a fatberg tremor, this dominates our emotions, thoughts, and behaviors and cuts off the flow of healthy energy to our lives in the moment. At various stages of development and in cases like traumatic events that lead to symptoms of PTSD, our unconscious minds become patterned and programmed. In symbolic terms, the figures and patterns which were once formed as constructive coping mechanisms driven by our three primal directives to deal with challenging situations in our lives become monstrous dysfunctions. As grown-ups navigating a modern rational world, the maze of monsters built around these three drives prevents us from reaching the center of the maze where the treasure lies. Because the unconscious works on patterns established within our psychic field when we were children or through the experience of trauma, if we haven't made ourselves aware of those patterns and dealt with them, or we have stuckness at various developmental levels, we're really not capable of being very mature. Basically, it means that we're letting parts of ourselves that formed at age three or four or five years old to run the show, especially when we're under stress or facing times of challenge. Our unconscious mind influences our choices and our behaviors, and it attracts issues and circumstances into our lives over and over again based on its underlying structural patterns. In the East, it's understood that these patterns are aspects of our karma. Now, it would be superficial to say that karma is our personal collection of unconscious patterns and archetypes. But it's not far from the truth. Perhaps saying this is closer to the truth than to assume that karma is a set of cosmic bank balances or debits that affect our daily existence because of stuff we did in a past life. I'd suggest that nature karma, our biological temperament, and nurture karma, our childhood environments, influence and control outcomes in our lives despite what our awake and aware self wants. This makes it hard as a grown-up to be, do, and have the things we want in life because the conscious part of us is simply not driving the bus. We generally think that the I that we identify with that resides behind the eyes, i.e. the person we think we are, is in charge of our life, and we're mistaken. Whatever the surface dysfunction is, it doesn't matter how we categorize, label, and describe our internal conflicts, obsessions, drives, and fears. Our unconscious minds have symbolic ways of representing them to us. That's what makes the metaphor of the maze so appropriate. Metaphors and symbol are part of the language and syntax of the unconscious. Myth, symbol, and legend contain representations of these archetypal patterns, and they also contain clues on how to deal with them. This is what we encounter in the labyrinth. This is why dreams, stories, and rituals, and metaphors are so powerful to us, powerful enough to be the source of religions and cultures all around the world. 
If we take the time to understand it, our unconscious mind will communicate with us in symbolic terms, and this will aid us in navigating the labyrinth of our unconscious. Learning to speak the language of the unconscious is tricky business, just like learning another language that's foreign to us. This is what draws so many people to symbolic sets like runes, tarot, astrology, Kabbalah, and other occult practices. It's also why epic stories like Star Wars or Harry Potter resonate with so many people, because the writers of these stories create a universe of integrated and related symbols that represent patterns familiar to and even structurally descriptive of our unconscious mind. The symbols within these stories and symbolic sets resonate with us because they are inventories of representations of these universal patterns in ways that are structural to our psyches. That said, for adepts who've studied many of these traditions with a fair degree of rigor, familiar patterns begin to emerge between various symbolic sets. There are indeed many methodologies for exploring this inner world and many languages that do it. Many methodologies for dealing with some of these patterns as well that we may encounter in our exploration. The secret about this maze, about this mystical labyrinth, is that it's you. The demons, daemon, the guides, the tricksters within this domain who guard the path to our own enlightenment are all aspects of the lower orders of you. The scariest Fatberg monster is you. The most frightening and difficult obstacle is you. As difficult as it is to hear, if you're not satisfied with your life, the cause of this is you, but not the conscious you, specifically, not the self-aware you, not the eye behind the eyes you, but the constellation of issues within the totality of the self you, the unconscious, the conscious, and the superconscious you. When our inner landscape is an untamed and unexplored horror movie, our psychic energy is bound within the characters of this underworld and within our soul. As we explore this inner world, as we tame, conquer, accept, shift, and surrender to the aspects of ourselves that run amok in the unexplored mind, we unlock our psychic and spiritual potential. We open up possibilities of having better relationships in our lives, of having more fulfilling careers, of being better parents, of having more financial security, and of being happier in our day-to-day -day lives. To do this, we must be willing to step outside our comfort zones and confront the shadows within us. This exploration, though I use the language of mazes and monsters, is not an invocation or a suggestion that we practice demonology. Nor are we engaging Hollywood-level ghosts and spirits. It's much simpler than that. What we know of the inner landscape in myth and legends, with their accounts of dragons and magical swords and minotaurs, is played up. It's embellished. These comic book versions of psychic forces and their caricatures of fears are ones we've been told about for centuries and centuries, but they're much more mundane than we generally imagine. Think about it this way. In the 1930s, Action Comics released a story about Superman, a man of great courage, character, honesty, and integrity. And along with these heroic traits, in order to make him memorable and marketable, he was written to have exaggerated supernatural powers, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, able to dodge bullets or to stop them faster than a locomotive or a speeding bullet over time, in order to stay relevant and memorable, this ubermensch's powers, this Superman's strength, evolved until he could fly faster than the speed of light, travel through time, blow icy breath to freeze enemies, and even to shoot lasers from his eyes. 
the concepts that we've been collectively speaking of, of demons, ghosts, demigods, and spirits in literature and lore are important and relevant to us, but they've undergone the same kinds of exaggerations as the powers of Superman have over time. Consequently, our heuristic responses to discussions about the reality of these forces within our psychics' fields are especially prone to disproportionate reactions and uninformed generalizations, because when we speak of monsters, it sounds like a caricature. We jump to the conclusions that these things couldn't possibly be valid or real as psychic tools because of how fantastic and over-the-top these figures are. There is a disconnect between the hyper-exaggerated qualities of Hollywood demons and the mundane expressions of our own demons, like the self-sabotage demon, or the denial demon, or the obsessive demons that are the source of our sufferings, depressions, and anxieties. Meanwhile, horned, fire-breathing, world-devouring giants and murderous soul-possessing hell fiends are the things that come to mind when we think of these monsters in the maze. Sometimes the worst drains on our energy, the biggest obstacles between us and the Holy Grail at the center of the maze are the issues imposed on us by parental figures or dysfunctional others as we're growing up and developing. Sometimes we hang on to these demons long after we need to. These are the unforgiven people and traumas that stack up, congeal, and calcify in the passages of our psyches. They block the healthy flow of energy throughout our lives. These bergs form as a consequence of the abusive parent patterning relationships for us, as a result of the ex who hurt us, as a consequence of the business partner who betrayed us and the colleague who doesn't respect appropriate boundaries. Sometimes the worst demons are the issues, traumas, and grudges that we hold within us that have nothing to do with us. This recognition points to a path for understanding, healing, and forgiveness. We have to recognize that the journey into the maze isn't an easy one, but the demons we're dealing with are also likely to be the ones, or as likely to be the ones that draw us to the cake in the fridge in the middle of the night, or keep us on the couch instead of exercising as a giant hundred-eyes monster. These demons are creatures of habit, the limiting beliefs, the fears of the perceptions of others. They're not really a mythical red-faced devil with horns who stands ready to gleefully prod us with a pitchfork in a comic book hell for all eternity. The maze is an ancient metaphor. So are the archetypes of vapid shades drawing the light from the room. And as are the trolls guarding bridges and vampires hypnotizing their victims. They're not objectively real, just like Superman isn't objectively real, but they stand for something that exists within us. They don't materially exist, but they have utility as representations of patterns of beliefs, behavior, and psychic energy. And if we can identify and deal with these, we can allow ourselves to transform issues in our lives that hitherto have been drains on the psychic energy of our souls. Every trauma every unconscious limitation, every shadow, every limiting belief, and every unforgiven grudge that we carry within us will constrict the flow of energy in our lives and limit our existence. This is something that's been known for thousands of years. It wasn't a discovery of modern psychology. It wasn't something that Tony Robbins suddenly came up with. It wasn't something that Osho revealed to the world. When Jesus was casting out demons and teaching people about the forgiveness of sins, this is the level of soul he was teaching his followers at. This knowledge is deep 
and ancient, and it was understood by the sages and shaman and the seers of antiquity in their common quest to become the hollow bone. 